and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith back with another episode of Cinema. This one concluding my limited series, The 80s Road to Cinema, and it's all brought to you by Dark Matter TV. TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. So to recap from part four, I have been talking about how basically following along my path from a kid through my teenage years, high school, and then through college, of trying to to fight, I guess that urge, that self conceit that you know you're this big fish in a small pond, and and the problem is is when you don't realize you're a big fish in a small pond. And my previous episodes talked of how I thought I was this big deal in high school, and I really wasn't. The number one sin that I committed was that I, I just simply did not push myself, and I just got very comfortable of where I was, and just kind of left it at that. I thought I knew more than what I did. And then I got to college and I just pretty much continued the same thing. I didn't change anything up and it didn't take long to bottom out of there, which I discussed in in part four. And really my only recourse was it was fight or flight. And I didn't really have it in me uh, to fight, to stay at Penn State. So I fled to Los Angeles. My mother was completely surprised. I had been working to save up money since my exit, my abrupt exit from Penn State. And I saved up money, bought a plane ticket, and I moved out to California. Now, the one thing that I had talked about was if I brought a Penn State hoodie sweatshirt to Anthony Perkins's secretary... Uh, she would get me in to see Anthony Perkins because in a, one of those wild phone calls that I talked about in my previous episode, I tracked down Anthony Perkins' office, spoke to his secretary who had just turned out, also went to Penn State, although she went to main campus and I was calling her from the Hazleton campus. So I did bring her that Penn State sweatshirt. Now, I want you to understand how this worked. Uh, I ended up with pretty much all of my belongings in a single suitcase and a roll of posters. I got off the plane. I went to Universal Studios where I put everything I had into a bus locker, went into a bathroom, washed up, uh, got that hoodie under my arm, took a taxi over to Universal City where I was to meet at the Black Tower. A pass would be waiting for me. And these were the executive offices. I mean, I'm, I'm talking I haven't been in California for really much more than 24 hours. And uh, that's where I met Anthony Perkins' secretary. And I brought her the Penn State hoodie. Uh, She was very gracious, a very, very sweet lady. And we sat, we talked for a while. And then finally after lunch, she said to me, I guess it's time to get you to meet Tony. And she took me down the hallway to his office. It was in the same building with Hilton Green, I guess, and and everybody else. And she took me in to Anthony Perkins' office. And when I walked in, it wasn't a very big office, but I remember to the right, there was a chair filled with screener videotapes. And I want to say they were VHS, but 
I'm not sure. And I had my VHS tape with me of my, my demo reel, which again consisted of a handful of uh, Sped Woman movies. And I remember looking in the box and seeing Psycho 3, like on masking tape written in marker on Psycho 3, you know, on, on the tapes. And I was excited. I'm like, wow, that's the movie. It's not even out yet. And they've already put it on video. This, this was a whole new world to me. And so uh, I waited. She said, just wait here. He'll be back. And I walked into his office and he had this really nice big desk. And on one of the walls were uh, a series of posters, mostly Psycho. But I remember there was a Japanese poster for Psycho 2. And it showed Norman uh, in the attic with the crosshair kind of uh, window frames, uh, the slats. And he was in the crosshairs with his uh, hands, his palms up against the glass. And I sat down in his chair and I was so excited to sit in Norman Bates's chair. And I was kind of twirling around and he walked in and I stood immediately up out of my chair and he came over and he shook my hand and he said, so you're the one I was told about. And uh, he got right to it. He was just like, so tell me, why are you here? And so I explained to him, I always wanted to make movies. I gave him the whole thing from Jaws and pretty much everything you've heard from listening from the uh, first part of this sub-series, this limited series. And uh, he was very polite and very nice. And he even said, uh, you know, I see you brought a videotape. What's that? And I said, well, you know, this is what I've done. I didn't even have the sense to call it a reel. I just said, well, this is what I've done. And he said, well, let's take a look at it. And he had a VHS machine in his office and we popped it in and he watched and he chuckled a couple times. And uh, I think he was just being really polite. I was a kid. I was 18 and he was just so damn nice. And after it was done, he said, well, that was interesting. And he asked me some questions, how I did it, uh, the transfer, that kind of thing. And then he said, would you like a tour of, of the studio lot? And I said, sure, this would be great. So Anthony Perkins was walking me around Universal Studios lot. And it was sometime, I'd say about a half hour in, he said, so what are your plans out here? And I said, well, I really didn't have a job yet. I, I needed to get even get an apartment. I didn't have a place. And he said, well, do you want a job here? And I was like, oh my God, yeah, I would, I would love a job here. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And my reply was just really simple, anything. I'll do anything. And so he walked me around more and he took me around to uh, different sets where TV shows were being shot. One of them was uh, A Day in the Life, I think it was called. Uh, uh, Richard Kiley was on that show. And I got to meet him in the cast. And I guess he was friends with him, something like that. But anyway, he introduced me around. And finally, I ended up on Murder, She Wrote. And I got to be a production assistant on Murder, She Wrote. And I... I I think I met Angela Lansbury, it was once, and I simply said hello to her. But otherwise, I was a gopher. I go for this, I go for that, and I just ran errands, and this is what he hooked me up with. Working on the studio lot on B-Lot taught me a lot, and I'll give you an example of, of how as a boy, you quickly learned to measure your enthusiasm. I am, God is my witness, going to tell you. I stood probably 20 feet from Steven Spielberg. He was zipping around on the lot in a golf cart and he stopped to talk to somebody who looked important, but everybody looks important on a studio lot. 
And I was talking to someone else and I saw him. I saw him pull right up and everything in me wanted to run over to him and just blurt out, Mr. Spielberg, I've been a fan of yours, blah, 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 blah. And tell him about my story with Jaws, seeing it at eight years old and having this fantasy that Steven Spielberg was going to grant me some position on, on Amblin at Amblin. And, and that's my, my point that you started learning quickly. Uh, there, there is a bit of a cynicism that you have to embrace uh, and that doesn't have to go with the quality of the work you're making, but you have to understand that there really isn't much magic on a studio lot. That's the image and, and the myth that is perpetuated, but it is all business. And when I would eat in the studio commissary, I saw John Aston. I saw all these people that I grew up with looking at their faces in syndication and every day. And I just wanted to run over to them and get their autograph. And, and this was before selfies and cell phones. So there, there really wasn't much documented proof of anything. And I'll give you an example. Uh, at one point, uh, I would, after work, uh, the highway would be so blocked up for me to get back to my apartment. that And I worked at Universal three days a week. And then I worked at a video store, uh, the balance of the week, just to make my rent and pay my bills. And... Uh, I used to wait sometimes because I, I learned about California traffic very early back then. And this is 1986. And so I would wait for the highway to clear by going to watch them shoot TV shows. And one of them was Charles in Charge. And uh, I just started going in and sitting there watching. And I found out quickly how the studio audience worked. And it was mostly all these like, you know, teeny bopper middle school and high school girls and and they all loved, you know, Willie Ames and they loved Scott Baio. And, and I found out that they ran field trips to these things. Like schools would come for a taping of, of these shows. And I would just sit there all the time and watch. I was down front. I had my studio pass, my lot pass. So I got in and one day, I, I think maybe it was like after three or four times doing this, Scott Baio came over to me and he said to me, he said, do you like this show that much? You're always in here. And then I explain, well, I work over on Murder, She Wrote, on B-Lot, blah, 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 blah. And we started talking. And then I said, I was from the Poconos. And he flipped. He's like, you're from the Poconos. And my grandparents, they had uh, a place all the way up in, uh, you know, Lake Lake Harvey, I think it was, or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we talked about Lake Wall and Paul Pack and, and the Poconos and, and Philadelphia. He was from Philly. And it was just this bonding moment where you were just two real people. And I couldn't believe I'm talking to Chachi. It wasn't really even Charles in charge of me. I was talking to Chachi. And uh, we, we got to bond with that. And then so I just, you know, would say hi to him. We became uh, casual friends. Uh, over over the course of time and it, and it never lasted that was the thing like I, I he wouldn't even recognize me today and if I said do you remember he might go oh yeah you were that guy and that's what I mean I would just be that guy that's the cynicism that I'm talking about I had to constantly temper myself with being excited for example when Angela Lansbury came on to set no one spoke to her and it wasn't even I don't think that she demanded it it was just this kind of uh, deferment that people did uh, with her and she got her paper and she drank her coffee and I remember I brought her I believe it was a coffee one time and she just simply said thank you that was my brush with greatness with Angela Lansbury and you know it was one of those things that I learned that at five o'clock I believe it was five when she felt or said that the day was done she had it in her contract that when the day was done that was it she left she just stopped what she was doing 
and she walked off the set. That was it. It was in her contract. You didn't run over. It wasn't Angela. Give us five more minutes. She was done. I remember that specifically watching a looping session where they had to loop their voices. And that was the first time I learned about that. The the scene was shot on a beach and she had to walk along the beach with this actor and they stood in this gigantic theater and just walked around and pretended they were walking while they looped their lines of this big projected image up on the screen like a movie theater. It was amazing. But there was a guy named Steve and he took to me. And he said to me, you really want to learn how all of this is done? And so afterwards, instead of hanging out on Charles in Charge, I would hang out with Steve. And he showed me something that blew my mind. And it was called digital nonlinear editing. And it was just coming down the pike and starting. And it was here that for the first time, I saw a project that was edited without it being on videotape that computer files could digitize the image and they could move it around. You could just drag things here and there. It was amazing. And it wasn't like it was now. It was, it was a, I believe it was a kind of Windows-based program, if I remember right. I remember strips, colored strips. But you could move things back and forth. And, and it was just incredible. It blew my mind. And he said, this is the way it's all going to go. And so that was incredible to me. That was a huge learning experience because I realized, he said to me, the days of film and even video are going to be over soon. He was 100% correct. But then I got my first real dose of cinema. And in the meantime, I started dating a girl who was on a soap opera that they shot on the lot. And she had also been uh, one of the bikini girls at the end of A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. And I can't remember if she got killed or not. I'll have to look her up sometime and ask her. But I was just excited. I was dating this beautiful girl. And she uh, lived down off of Englewood, I believe it was. And I was just excited that I had this beautiful hot girlfriend who, in my mind, was very famous. She did some TV spots and stuff like that. And I, I was just excited. But I would sometimes cross through the Black Tower and through the offices. And I remember I got to go through an office that was set aside for George Lucas. And for some reason, I remember that Lucas had a sneaker under glass. And I can't remember why, but there was something significant about the sneaker. And one day I was just looking at the sneaker when this guy came in and sat down behind me at a desk. And it was this big, I realized that they weren't really offices. This was part of this, this major suite that I was crossing through. And the suite belonged to producer Howard Kasanjan, the guy who did Raiders of the Lost Ark, Return of the Jedi. I remember Kasanjan was really just, he was just so cynical. And, and he said to me, he said, who are you? And, and I told him who I was. And he goes, well, what are you doing in here? And I said, well, I passed through here. Uh, just I would go see Jackie every once in a while, the secretary. And, you know, meet her for lunch and, and to always pay that forward. And as a constant saying of thank you for helping me get a job here. And I told him where I worked and he saw that I had a pass. So it was, you know, a badge, you know, it was okay. And so we started talking. And one day he said to me, he said, well, bring your reel. I want to see what you've done. You know, you talk about all this film stuff because I told him about Jaws and I told him my experience of seeing Raiders of Lost Ark and my theatrical experience of seeing uh, Return of the Jedi. And he did not seem to care all that much. And he seemed like very agitated all the time. 
And uh, one day he watched my reel. We popped it into a VHS machine and I don't think he watched more than five, 10 minutes. And I remember him saying like, oh, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. And so I shut it off. And it was then that he sat at his desk and he he said to me, he goes, so let me ask you, he goes, I see his shot you know, in, in some mall, right? I said, well, yeah, it was my local mall. And, and I went through everything like that. And he said, how much did they charge you to shoot in the mall? And and I replied, well, they, they didn't charge me anything. I just knew people. And he went, uh-huh. And he goes, how much did your actors, how much did you have to pay them? And I said, nothing. And he said, well, you know, how much did you have to pay to get it on the air in, in your town? And, and again, I replied, nothing. And he just kept nodding. And then finally he looked at me and he said, let me tell you something. You're not going to find anybody out here that's going to do anything for you for free. He said, this is a town where even, and I quote, the fucking plumber has a script. Kassanjan just went on to give me this really, although it was realistic, a very cynical layout of things. And, And he was real blunt. He said, what are you doing out here? And I just said, well, you know, I'm working. He goes, yeah, that's all you're doing. He said, are you, have you made anything since you came out here with your little film camera? And I said, no. And he goes, exactly. He said, kid, go home. He said, you're not going to get anything done here. I never expected that kind of advice. And as a kind of a portent or omen, uh, that afternoon, I was walking around the lot in the evening And I stopped by where they had all the fiberglass shark heads and they were building the gigantic ending scene, the big backdrop with the water tank for Jaws the Revenge. And I remembered somebody telling me there, some tech or somebody said, well, this is for Jaws 4. They're shipping all of this out to the Bahamas. I'm like, there's going to be a Jaws 4? I was blown away. And he said, yeah, he said, this is where they're going to shoot the ending. So I actually got to see that in real life uh, months before they even came there to shoot it. And these, I just remember these big fiberglass shark heads all lined up in a row, getting ready to be shipped off uh, to go to the Bahamas. And how, if I only knew then how that would figure into my life and of course this podcast. That was his advice. And I decided, I guess maybe... I'll go home. And I think that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. I moved all the way out to Los Angeles with the hopes of fulfilling my dream and realizing the dream of becoming a big filmmaker and becoming like Spielberg. And I actually ran into a Spielberg associate. And what was his advice? Go the hell home. I wrote a few friends, including my old eighth grade reading teacher who helped me get Mad Monster Party made. And uh, she said, there is no shame in coming home. And I still, I'm looking at it right now as I record this podcast. She sent me a greeting card, a Hallmark card, and I had a pin attached to it called Celebrity. And I'm going to read it. I'm going to reach right over now. This is an impromptu thing. And I'm going to read it. And she said, I've been thinking about your plans ever since you called. I came up equal parts hope, faith, and excitement. We never stop learning. Once we do, we might as well be dead. I'll wait until I see you to get philosophical. It's cold and gray today, and I'm on my way to exchange Christmas gifts for the family. I didn't mind sharing my family this year as as much as other years. I'm getting there. You told me I would. Now I'll tell you. You will too. It's going to be fun. I'll see you when you get home. Mrs. Haddon.
It was that card that made me decide I'll come home. And I let my parents know and my mother was happy to hear it. And she greeted me at Newark airport. And I remember feeling totally defeated and a complete loser. I was supposed to go out to California and I was supposed to come back this big star. In fact, all my old friends during the one New Year's Eve I was out there had a huge party at this hotel in the Poconos. It was kind of a tradition. They rented out a block of rooms and just partied like hell. And one of them called me from one of the rooms. And I started getting passed around to all my friends who thought I was a big deal living in California and in Los Angeles and working at Universal Studios. And there was no internet at the time to follow up, no Facebook to post your progress. So they had to take my word. And I made it sound far better than what it really was. And that's cynical. I should have just told the truth. And the truth was, I was coming home. I was crashing and burning. And I wasn't coming back any more creative or any more successful than when I left. I came home. My mother allowed me to stay for a few months till I got myself together. I paid rent, which is interesting. I'm sure most millennials and Gen Zers would be like, your parents charge you rent. But I did. I paid room and board to stay in my old bedroom uh, till I got on my feet and I moved out promptly. I, I think I was home maybe three, four months and I found a place and I moved out. And I got a job back at the old movie theater. I started managing uh, the mall movie theater again, uh, the one that I worked at as a boy, as an usher growing up. And I kind of settled into my comfort zone. I made some steady money. I was living on my own and I did okay, but I wasn't making movies and some other changes were going to have to come. But by 1988, I was fully entrenched in mediocrity and I just kind of resigned myself to the fact that the movie thing was just never going to happen. And then a few things would come down the line to change all of that. That's for another series of podcasts at another time. But I'll be revisiting these limited series to take you even further and all the way up to the making of my first film, The Fields, which starred Cloris Leachman and Tara Reid. So this is Harrison Smith. Stay creative, be creative, push yourself, and don't settle. Thank you for listening. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.